This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This episode features a conversation with Blood Incantations mastermind, Morris Kolontrowski. The catalyst for the chat was the release of The Hidden History of the Human Race. It came out at the end of 2019. And uh, this chat actually took place in April or thereabouts of 2020, so just as the pandemic was kicking into full gear. It has been available, the conversation has been available via podcast apps ever since then. And I'm repurposing it here for you, the YouTube audience, because God knows there are a hundred times more of you here than there are over at the podcast apps. So here it is, just for you. Now, throughout this conversation, we talk all about the blood incantation philosophy. We go into influences. It's definitely a conversation. So I know some of you have a bit of a dig at me and say, hey, you talk too much. Well, fuck off. I like talking to these musicians. They're some of my favorite people in the world. I did catch up very, very briefly with Morris when the group toured Australia in, I think it was October of last year, so 2022. They put on a pretty good show, although they didn't play for long enough, but, you know, I say that about all my favourite bands, that they should play for a bit longer, but it was great to see Morris in full flight because he's an exceptional musician. Something else, only 12 months ago or thereabouts, he released a solo album by any other name. It was under the Blood Incantation moniker, but a synth masterpiece is Time Wave Zero. Check that one out if you like your synth wave or your synth drone because Morris knows how to write extreme metal as well as some of that stuff. So here he is, Morris from Blood Incantation. Enjoy. Morris, I've got to tell you, it's a real thrill to talk to you. I've been I've been listening to your music now for a couple of months, almost non-stop, in between all the other stuff that I get. And look, I was drawn to reach out to you for a conversation because in, in the scheme of things, look, I'm a metal lifer. I've been into this for almost 30 years at this point, but I haven't quite heard anything like your music, I must say. And I'm not just not just giving you a uh, compliment for no reason here. I, f- I appreciate it. Look, I found Hidden History of the uh, of the Human Race on New Year's Day. I remember it well. I remember that exact moment because you were appearing on so many year-end lists. You didn't appear on mine because, to be honest, I just hadn't heard of you. And I hadn't... Yeah. I sort of had some awareness, but I wasn't aware of how great you were. It's probably the best way to describe it. But I, I thought, I better check this out. And, of course, I, put, I found you in Apple Music. And holy shit, the next few hours were spent diving into your music, and it's fair to say I've become a fairly, uh, pretty strong fan, a firm fan of your work. And one of the, the key things that I love about it, outstanding musicianship, truly world-class musicianship, but I also understand that you're recorded using analogue equipment, which gives your music amazing warmth without sacrificing any of the clarity that is essential for understanding what you guys are doing. And look, the capstone to my comments here... I feel as though Blood Incantation uh, are worthy of joining the hallowed hall of greats. Now, I'm talking death, cynic, morbid angel, atheist, oh, pessimist. That gives me uh, goosebumps, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, look, this is genuine feedback and, and, and true praise, I've got to say, because Blood Incantation is certainly a band for fans of those of those great bands that will never go away. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying. The death and he's, mm. it, I feel like Chuck's music is, is finding just new generation of fans constantly. And I feel your music is going to do something similar. But look, now that I've said all of that, and look, I've read 
I only feel like with you guys, I'm reading positive music, uh, positive feedback and comments online about what you guys are doing and that the metal world has truly opened their arms to you guys. And look, do you feel as though that within the band, did you feel that buzz? Does it reach you guys with what you were doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're still a relatively young band. Hmm. And uh, the four of us have played in tons of other bands before this, continue to do so. But uh, yeah, we're we're quite aware of what's happening, and you know we we make moves specifically to to do to reach people in a specific way. You know, like Hidden History came out at the end of 2019 on purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other things that were in place, but uh, yeah, we're definitely aware of what's going on online and the the critiques and the positive stuff and the negative stuff um, I try not to read about it too much you know because it gets overwhelming you get in your head about it but um, I think it's important to know uh, your place within the environment mm-hmm. that you live in you know so yeah we feel the buzz and uh, it it contributes to uh, to us jamming like all the negative feedback contributes to us positively, you know, mm-hmm. all the positive feedback even more so. So, yeah, we, we keep our ear to the ground and see what's going on. Yeah, I, I haven't heard anybody like you guys in a long time in that I, I keep on finding layers. Music is like an onion uh, insofar as <laughs> there's the core of what you guys are doing that you could play in an acoustic guitar. Sure, you know what I mean when I say that. You can get your riffs and you can mm-hmm. hammer them out and they they sound wonderfully musical. But you've just built so many layers. It's like ear candy and it just constantly comes at you. And the other thing that you've done, which I really appreciate, you haven't gone with those bloody awful lyric videos. You've actually done a proper video, which I think is, is <laughs> crucial, is really important with the Stargate video there. Do, do you get feedback about that sort of thing too, the way that you are giving people an, all, an all-encompassing experience? Yeah, I mean, the band represents an overarching idea, you know, and so the way we're going to operate is going to, every aspect of it is going to be part of the same thing, whether it's a video, a live show, the layout of the record, the riff, the, pretty much the content of anything we do, any tour, any band we play with, every tour we go on, it's like it has to make sense. Hmm. as to the overarching theme of what we're doing. And I, I'm i really happy that some people are catching on to this idea. Like, there, There's plenty of bands that'll play whatever, Evil Metal Fest number 34 or whatever <laughs> the hell. Yep. And uh, I appreciate that. I love that. I love dark, evil, aggressive, heavy music. But I want to take it further than that. And you mentioned Chuck earlier. That was always his dream. You know, like mm-hmm. the last death record, Sound of Perseverance, that's like a milestone. That's almost an entirely different band from the records before wow. that. Yeah, yeah. And so, and for me personally, my vision is similar to Hit, where it's like, yeah, we're up the metal flow, heavy metal's awesome. But within that context, try to push it further in everything that you do as a band. Hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned and frame it the way you have about Chuck there because I too feel exactly the same way about The Sound of Perseverance. And as an album that frequency frequently is the last one in terms of, you know, those bullshit, you know, best albums by best band lists and it's the mm-hmm. one that comes in last and I simply don't understand it because I actually really rate I, Control Denied as well. 
you know, it took me a while to appreciate it, definitely. Symbolic was my first death record. And uh, even that one is like, you know, it's extremely tech and very mm. different from like leprosy, let's say. But even so, Sound of Perseverance, it, it took me like, I heard it and then it, maybe like a year later I came back to it and finally got it. But I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it is pretty self-indulgent music for musicians. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think that, I don't know, yeah. It, like you mentioned layers, I hear that in that record. There's so much classic heavy metal influence in that, like Judas Priest. I mean, there's a painkiller cover at the end of the album, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like him returning to heavy metal, but also in that same way, pushing it forward in his own styles. Yeah. Hmm. It's well, a good one for Maybe, it'll, maybe it'll, it'll have another round of appreciation in years to come. Who knows? I think so. I think as people mature and they move into different phases of their life and they're not just after blinding intensity constantly like it was with the first two or three albums of Chuck, once you start letting the music breathe, which you guys do beautifully, there's a real ebb and a flow with your music. And it, it music or albums, albums specifically, collections of work, singular bodies of collections of work, whether it be an EP or an album must take a listener on a journey, which is what you guys have done with Hidden History of the Human Race of the Human Race and what Chuck did on all of his albums. And that's that's what I think bands these days I get sent so much stuff, especially with this layover happening through coronavirus. I'm getting sent to me up to 20 or 30 albums and EPs and just singles a week, you know, a combination of all three a week. But the albums that that I generally um, am drawn toward are the ones that take you on a journey. So that's a question Mm -hmm. for you is when you're crafting music, is it it, because sometimes artists aren't aware that they take bands on a journey. I'm sure Trey doesn't realise he does it as much as what he does with, with his work at Morbid Angel, but is it something that's intentful with you guys? Like, is it is it a strategy to take the listener on a journey or does it just sort of work out that way because that's the way the songs fit together in the rehearsal room? Um, we love riffs and we love a lot of different types of riffs, all sorts of different atmospheres from ambient riffs to suffocation brutal slam and uh we also like 70s prog rock which i think is pretty apparent on the newest album mm-hmm. yeah so the the journey aspect of it i i, I think it, just, it falls into place naturally despite the fact that we do want it to come across that way you know anytime i focus on any one part of what i want a song to be like it's usually not going to turn out that way Mm -hmm. so i try to turn off my brain and be like all right well what do i want to hear and then string that together and i think the the linear songwriting lends itself to the journey aspect you know there isn't any like chorus or uh, like a b a b style within our music yeah so yeah i mean the linear aspect is like that is the journey but then also the ebb and flow of the different atmospheres lends itself to that as well and uh i mean we're happy with the outcome we definitely want to portray that but like i said it's hard to focus on a specific idea and put it into place as opposed to just kind of shutting off and letting it take you there Mm, letting the metal flow, I get it, yeah. And and something else which is a bit of a master stroke, very few bands are doing this these days because, look, I'm a musician and I understand it's a pain in the ass to do it this way, but listen to the results, recording analogue. It's something that is just like a hand in a glove with you guys. So was that a decision that was made early on? Because I understand your earlier stuff was recorded on analogue as well. 
Yeah, so the the EP was kind of a hodgepodge. That was that was uh, an experiment. We didn't even have a bass player at the time when we record when we wrote those songs. Mm-hmm. And then when we went in to record, it was kind of a disaster experience between us and the producer missing guitar tracks that was recorded digitally track by track and then eventually after we got something salvageable we sent it over to damon our australian friend actually nice um yeah from uh, from marvel congregation stargazer all those excellent bands and okay. uh he he was friends with paul and jeff from a previous band that they toured in together and he recorded bass over it so yeah that was all kind of piece together digitally so after that whole experience we were like man it didn't quite turn out the way we'd hoped because when we play it live it sounds so much better and again uh we love 70s music and all of our parents raised us listening to you know led zeppelin black sabbath all those awesome 60s and 70s bands they all recorded live Mm -hmm. so like we even didn't we didn't even need to have a discussion about this we were all on the same page just like okay we're gonna do it the way real actual like badass bands in the 70s that it just hammer away at it until you get the best take mm. and yeah it was never much of a discussion it was just like immediately agreed upon well it's for the benefit of the music no doubt about that and it's it hints at something else there that it sounds like as though because there's four of you in the band i understand it was certainly from the photos mm. you guys seem to agree on a yeah. lot which is rare in a band, we know that. Did you guys, was it a process of attrition that you found each other? In other words, were there people coming in and going out of the band until you settled on this lineup? Can you tell me how, how the band formed and how you got this lineup together? Yeah, uh, that's a pretty interesting story. So, Paul, the vocalist and other guitar player, he, uh, he had an idea for this band a long time before it was put into play. Like he, he's the essential mastermind behind the name and the, you know what the band is about and the, all, all four of us are on the same page about it obviously we pretty much agree on every point but uh, it, we kind of came together in this really I don't know like it was like celestial mechanics putting it nice. putting all of us in the same room yeah. it's very nice, nice analogy feeling. but uh, so Paul and Isaac met because of previous bands that they played in. Paul played in a band called Vilnius. Isaac played in a band called Stoic Dissension. And this is all already in Colorado. Um, Paul and Isaac met up at a jam funeral doom, actually. They have another band called Abysmal Dimensions, mm-hmm. which actually played their first show this last summer. Um, but uh, Paul had no idea that Isaac could play drums. And one day, Isaac was messing around on the drum kit, and Paul was like, oh my God, you're amazing. How did I know? Did not, how did I not know about you? It's crazy. <laughs> and so uh, he had the chops to play the style of death metal that Paul didn't envision. Mm-hmm. So they started jamming guitar drums, and then I randomly met Paul at a pizza shop this college town where I was going to school in <laughs> Boulder, Colorado. Nice, yeah. And it was a total chance meeting. And he wrote down on a piece of paper all of these bands that he was a part of. Some of them were still just ideas at that point that hadn't existed. Blood Incantation was one of those names. Spectral Voice was as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it must have been, I don't know, at least another year after that, after I like, randomly met him, 
I went to a party of my old bandmate, this band I played in called Stillborn Fawn, uh, his girlfriend's house. And Paul and the other Vilnius dudes were there. And that's the first time Paul and I were able to actually like sit down and talk about music and guitar. So I joined pretty much that night. Mm-hmm. So then it was just me, Paul, and Isaac, and we had a hard time finding a bass player. We never really auditioned anyone. We were thinking about doing the, the time goal thing, and just doing uh, three time guitars goal. instead of yeah. a bass. Yeah. Because that was around the time we discovered that, which was in, what, 2013? Yep. Great band, by the way, Time um, Goal. Yeah. Amazing band. Oh, my God. I'm constantly trying to write their full-length record. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's like... Um, but yeah, so the three of us jammed, wrote all the songs for uh, the EP. Yeah, we had Damon play the bass for that. And then uh, around, yeah, I don't, can't remember when was Starspawn recorded in 2015. Mm-hmm. So it took us around two years to find a bass player who was Jeff, who had already played with Paul in Vilnius. And uh, he was down to do the fretless finger style and him and Paul had been in Vilnius for a long time together toured Europe numerous times so that connection was already there mm-hmm. and I'd I'd hung out with him a few times before that so we all prior to playing any music together at all had known about one another through various different avenues mm-hmm. so once we were all in the same room together I mean it was like that's it we're brothers for life this is the journey we're on and uh there was never any like sit down to make sure you're on board with this idea or this kind of thing. It was just kind of a yeah mentally pre-agreed upon uh, cycle of life. It just we got into this room and everything's been been chugging away ever since. Mm. Yeah, well, it works. There's no doubt about that. And the other thing, you guys certainly, you, you found each other, you get along, you're good mates from the sounds of things, but it all connects on stage as well, not just on the recording. You guys have got the triumvirate. So it works on stage, works in the studio, and you're good mates. So it sounds like we can look forward to music coming from you guys for a long time. And I just want to clarify what I mean by about works on stage. I don't think I've seen a modern heavy metal band as accomplished as you guys from a musicianship standpoint, certainly from the videos that I've seen. Now, the videos, the oh, I can't, there's a recent performance, it's a 2019 performance, and it looks effortless. And I've always noticed that. I, I'm a big fan of the great, late, great Ralph Santola, and I said that to him whenever he plays it, all these beautiful neoclassical leads that he was doing, but it looks like he's looking off into the corner of the room whilst he's doing it. Something similar is happening with you guys. And as I mentioned, I'm a musician, and I know how hard it is to really get that right. But what we're really seeing is hundreds, if not thousands of hours of continuous rehearsal from you guys to make sure it, oh, all, yeah. it all works. And maybe it, it sounds, I mean, for anybody out there, listening that wants to hear a band that sounds very close to what they do on an album live but you lose nothing of the performance side of things and that's the key point you guys are the band <laughs> thank you I mean, yeah we try to uh, I mean I remember when I saw Iron Maiden for the first time hmm. I'd already been obsessed with them for years and it was even better live than it was on record and I was like holy shit man how is that even possible hmm. so I've always been chasing that idea of just like if you're going to play live and go on tour, it's like, 
it's got to be the the whole shebang, the whole experience. Not only is this like you know the show aspect is important, but the sound and like capturing the right tonalities is very difficult based on like every venue you're playing and like all the rooms are so you know there's so many different types of acoustics but uh i don't know it seems like we've found some sort of formula that works for us as far as it being effortless i'm i'm happy you think i'm happy you think so it's definitely extremely difficult mm. <laughs> and mm. yeah we do practice a lot even like we'll come back from tour and then maybe just wait a week and then start rehearsing again you know but we all like to play i mean that's I work at a bar, but that's that's not my life, you know? My life is playing guitar and being in the practice space and pursuing mm. this artistic ideal I have. Please keep on doing it, Morris. It's really important, and I've said this a few times as an artist. Yeah, it's, you're one of those artists, and you're a band by extension that improves people's lives because they're listening to you. And, and I, I, I can't remember who it was that I made this point with, but, you know, I was talking to Pete from Vader. I've spoken to so many great people over the, in the course of my, my time doing this. But great heavy metal acts as the Prozac in the absence of it, if that makes sense. It is what makes people feel like waking up in the morning because they look forward to listening to the music when they might have a lot of other things going on in their life. And people don't really understand that mm -hmm. about a lot of died in the wall heavy metal fans. We live for the riff. We live for the drums, the vocal, the bass, the whole thing coming together to form this great heavy metal architecture that you guys are doing. So so when, when you guys are writing, is it one of those situations, for example, where you capture some classic riffs, some great riffs that you're really happy with, maybe put a drum beat underneath it and put it into the cloud and say to the guys, hey, do something to this, and when we get to the rehearsal room, we'll see what we've all come up with? Uh, the... Our song structure, or the, the the writing process works in a few different ways. Oftentimes, someone will come to practice with a skeleton of like an almost full song, but that's just riffs put yeah. together, you know? Not necessarily a drum beat or a lead or a harmony or a vocal part. So oftentimes, it'll be a skeleton of, a, of an idea that then the other three members fill out. And... Uh, uh, side B of uh, Hidden History Isaac wrote that whole progression of riffs you know mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean he wrote like the ambient part in the middle we just did that in the studio but the idea for that part was there and then the idea for the end for like the classical guitar outro and the epic solo that kind of came later you know as to build upon the journey aspect of it mm -hmm. um, so yeah someone will bring a skeleton and we'll fill it out and that can go in so many different directions, you know. Probably the original version of uh, that 18 minute log track sounds entirely different from how it came to be. Hmm. Um, and then other times we'll have a riff that we just jammed at practice randomly that we just found in the ether and hold on to it for like a year or two until we need it again to fit in this perfect place. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we'll hold on to riffs for a really long time and remember them and then like they have the perfect time for them to come back and to play mm. um inner past outer space that was pretty much uh, that first riff in it that like really ethereal one we'd have that written for like a year and a half before we decided to use it that's a stunning riff actually that one, I had maybe. a recording of it yeah. yeah I had a recording of that riff on my phone from some practice where I like randomly played it when someone went to the bathroom or something and then I remember I was like going through riffs on my phone. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I had to like reteach myself how to play it. 
and uh, yeah, and then it came into play when it needed to. Mm. But so yeah, it just, just kind of depends. Well, that that oh, I'm glad you mentioned inner paths to outer space because it, it probably is my favourite cut from you guys, and the reason for that is the way it builds. You've got this this beautiful. You sound it sounds very similar to something to what King's X would do, Tytabor, you know, the great guitarist in King's X, who's very mm-hmm. much influenced by Rush. So I totally understand where the prog elements are coming from with you guys. So I get it. I believe me, I totally understand it. And what what you're doing with that cut there though is you're putting it through a death metal template. And out comes this, this, it's probably, it's very hard to describe the techniques that you're using across there because being a guitarist as well, you're using a lot of sustain, you're making sure the hot, the note holds on and it rings. And I don't think I've mm-hmm. seen a better marriage of visuals to music than what you guys have done uh, with the video in, in ages. I mean, I can't, off the top of my head at the moment, I can't name a, a modern video. I think Nada Sedek did a great job with the Morbid Angel Um the Morbid Angel video for I can't remember the song that they put mm-hmm. with that. You know the one I'm talking about where it's out of space, and yeah. I think that looks yeah, that yeah. looks that looks pretty good, but it's not quite at the level that your one here is at. So who did the who did the video for this one here? Who did you commission to do that for you? So actually, since we have found this person for us, they'd uh, they'd worked with him before. I've, I've never met this person, so actually I can't even remember the guy's name. Unfortunately, I can mm. look it up in a second, but. Um, I remember we were on tour when this whole thing was coming together, so it was kind of hazy in my mind. But uh, Paul wrote like a very detailed description of what we wanted the video to be like, and we had the idea for it a while before we were actually in the process of uh, recording the record. Um, and, and yeah, Century Media wanted like an actual music video. They suggested a lyric video and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It seems a little modern. And you know, kind of played out. So we, <laughs> Paul wrote this like insane, detailed e- email of just like what needs to be presented in this how all this crazy shit. And then, uh, Century Media sent us some stuff the guy had done before, and it looked pretty trippy. But man, he knocked it out of the park. Hmm. It was. I remember we were getting like little clips at a time, like maybe ten, fifteen seconds at a time, and just what a tease it was. Sitting in the van, seeing that on a little like iPhone screen. And then when the, when the full thing came out, we were actually still on tour. Um, I remember that night we got into our hotel room and it was the first thing we watched. It was amazing. I mean, I, I feel the same way you do because the song is there, but th- those visual aspects of it, I'm watching someone else's art. You know? Yeah, totally. I, I've watched it many times, a couple of dozen times. And again, like your music, there's new things that I keep seeing the entire time. I mean, the Stargate concept, is that something that yeah. your bandmate came up with? Or, I mean, it's, it's just a brilliant concept, taking you I through that, the theory. That concept of a, I mean, that is essentially what the band is about, you know. All of the lyrics and mythology and images tie back into that. It's like multidimensional travel, you know, past lives future lives all congregating into the same place and what it all means and I think the video portrays that very well it portrays that beautifully that's such a good way of putting it and that's kind of how I felt about it I have very vivid dreams you see and and when I think about what some of my dreams sort of touch on it's it's like what you're the fellow who's put this video together has done here. It's I love that out of space stuff. That stuff where it 
we are such a a minute we aren't even we don't even register in the grand scale of the cosmos and it's it's our ego that convinces us that we do but your video goes some way to explaining that in a lot of ways and it it feels it feels like i'm having a um a moment with the cosmos there you go when i'm watching that video and your music is is playing alongside of it obviously yeah, it's amazing. And uh, so I found the guy's name. It's uh, Miles Scarin, and his website is crystalspotlight.com. So I feel like I owe him a shout-out at least. I'd love to meet the guy someday. But, well, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, these concepts are, uh, you know, they're difficult to understand if, if you're not a person interested in, in I mean, I'm wondering how to phrase this. If you're someone that's just like living day to day and you've got your routine and your schedule, et cetera, and you're kind of like in this rut, same day, like over and over and over again, it's, it's difficult to understand these concepts because they're naturally against what you're doing all the time. Hmm. So I feel like our band could be a good vehicle to, to bring it to a more like comprehensible level. When we're just, we're not claiming we have any answers, you know? I just want to ask the questions. Mm, mm. But I think that's what we're here to do, mate, as humans. We're here to ask questions. And what our ego does is it forces us to believe that there's a, an answer out there somewhere. And for the most part, there isn't. I was just talking to my wife about this last night. Like, life itself, the whole fact that we came into existence makes zero sense just via science. Mm -hmm. there's, there's really only a hypothesis, which is Darwinism, that talks about survival of the fittest, which goes some way to explaining. But we simply do not understand how we obtain sentient consciousness and that's how we've invented religion to try to give an answer to that and look i understand that mm -hmm. yeah it, the god the god hole is huge yeah yeah it's very it's like strange. a massive driving aspect of history yeah i well i can't understand how we're even here i mean a whole it's whether elon's right and we're all in a big simulation uh i, I need some work to try to understand what he's talking about need to do some work to understand what he's talking about there but our whole i mean i've got kids so i can i can see the majesty of life repeating itself and the love the unbound love that i feel toward mm -hmm. my children i get that and if that's the if that's what we're here to do is to feel that so be it but we're here for but a it's not even a fleeting moment in time on a cosmic scale but here we are and we have an opportunity to create and to be something that we would otherwise not be if we didn't have this flesh vehicle and and that's why i think it's so important from a musical standpoint that someone like myself gets behind what you're doing to try to spread the word to get you as many other people as possible that haven't heard you guys because it's something that's extremely worthwhile and it's i hope this isn't too broad a tangent for me to make so work with me here when i make this point but it's music mm -hmm. like yours that actually strives to bring humanity forward Okay, we live in a commercial society, being in the United States and Australia, so we can pretty much buy whatever we want when we've got the money, so there's not really any challenge mm -hmm. to that outside of earning the funds to do it, but it's not spiritual growth. Music like yours, the way it inspires, is spiritual growth. It's a part of that that uh, great religious fear, if you like, uh, that forces us to ask even more questions, I think, and that's why I think it's so important what you guys are doing. I, you know, I, I resonate with that. I do. And uh, what it makes me think of is that, you know, ancient societies, say pyramids, for example, hmm. you know, classic 
classic concept, but uh, and uh, tons of musicians in the past have explored this as well. Like Paul Horn has a record called Inside the Great Pyramid, mm-hmm. and frequencies resonate in different ways around these megalithic structures, mm-hmm. and energy works in different ways around these ancient megalithic structures. So I, I certainly believe that when music is created in a, in a certain pattern, in a certain form, that happens to click, that it can it can make you feel this uh, this sense of wonder, and these questions will come to you naturally based on the frequencies around you. And uh, that wasn't our intention when we wrote a lot of this music. You know, certainly want it to be but uh, every time we play these crazy long songs or any song we have I like I get filled with this just like inspiration mm-hmm. and wonder it's just I don't know it takes me to an entirely different plane of existence yeah it does for me too yeah music has always done that we, we mentioned Chuck earlier of course and his music when I first started leaning into that same thing with Trey and Morbid Angel especially with them when I was when I was a young fella it was it was like I listened to it when I was going to sleep, and it is about tuning into the frequency that that individual is on. So while some might be listening, let's pick you for example. I might be listening to your guitar playing. I'm actually trying to tune into your mental wavelength and what you were thinking and what you were trying to achieve when you were creating these riffs. And if they were just flowing through you, as Van Halen often says, happens. You know, who knows from where this great music comes from. We're really merely acting as a rod for the lightning through to pa- the, the musical lightning to pass through us. I do, having written stuff in the past and I've, I've gone on personally, gone on week long binges where I've written just about all the music I've ever come up with in my life. And then outside of that, it's just been the yeah. wells dry and I don't understand it. And to your exact point, oh, yeah. just to wrap it up, it's about frequency, isn't it? Being on the right frequency. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I said. Like, like I said earlier, sometimes focusing on it too much, it's like it's never going to come out because you're trying so hard to do it. You know? But yeah, I don't know, that uh, that mystical experience of finding the right riff for any artistic expression really, you know, for visual art or anything else, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And that's that's what raises the question. It's like, what is that? What aspect mm. of human life are you tuning into when that happens? What's your take on when we talk about ancient civilizations? And for the life of me, I can't remember the guy's name. I've got to try and find out before. I can put it always in the in the notes when I do my narrative aspect of the uh, podcast episode. But there's a guy that talks with a lot of credibility. He was recently on Joe Rogan's show about the age of civilization being way older than what we're crediting it as being. Now, we, we know that because... The first, first thing that comes to mind, which has been proven, I understand, is that the watermarks that are on the pyramids are something in the vicinity of twenty to 30,000 years old, not a mm-hmm. couple of thousand years old. So the whole idea of the oldest pyramids only being built sort of four or 5,000 years ago is wrong. Now, I, I've always felt that anyway, because why would pyramids be popping up all around the world in societies that had virtually, no, well, literally had nothing to do with each other? So pyramids pop up in South America, Central America, Thailand, Cambodia, yep. they are everywhere, yet they pop up at different times in history when, as far as we understand, there was not the technology to transmit the necessary uh, engineering uh, blueprints, if you like, on how to build pyramids. So why on earth are all of these civilizations and societies coming up with the same structure it's just a constant thing so do you think that 
or, or I know it's a very broad question to be asking you, mate, but of course I wouldn't believe for a minute that you'd accept, you, you would take accepted wisdom as law, but do you have a theory behind how we've evolved? Is it from Sumeria and then right the way up to now? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. So there's the the massive question you just proposed about the pyramids. How could that possibly be happening like, with the distance? You know, people didn't have communication skills they do now. But uh, on top of that, the imagery surrounding the pyramids, like all the religious structures portraying like plumed serpents, mm. all carrying this weird little bucket, all wearing a watch. There's lots of lots of crazy similarities between, let's say, like Aztecs and then like people that lived in, in ancient Egypt, for example. And uh, there's a there's a great docu documentary series on Netflix. Maybe it's still up there called The Pyramid Code. And that that talks about yeah the water erosion and how carbon dating didn't uh, didn't date the Sphinx properly. It's actually older than we thought, and yeah. that like throws all of history up in the air. But as far as uh, how all these things could happen at the simultaneously in different parts of the world, I mean, the answer is in the cosmos, in my opinion. Hmm. There has to be some sort of connection to the stars and a greater, greater frequency and energy that people felt despite the fact that they were so far away. Some mm. sort of hive mind um, structure, like the pyramids, for example, would connect people and bring them to a higher elevation of consciousness where they can communicate through vast distances. You know, I don't, I don't want to use the word aliens or like multidimensional beings, but it's hard to not... Uh, go that direction when you're talking about something so inexplicable hmm. look in the absence of all other explanations the alien one isn't a bad one it's just that I, I don't think people have dived uh, Tony Hitchens I think is the guy's name now that I remember it uh, but mm -hmm. as I say I'll put it in the in the notes when I do the nar narrative to the podcast episode but yeah it's very hard and you can understand why people dive into broadly speaking here conspiracy theories about us being a product of an alien civilization or what have you because it's, yeah. so, it's so bizarre to your point that there is an elevation in consciousness at some point in time clearly it must be that otherwise it couldn't just be a single civilization that goes around the world showing people how to build pyramids it didn't happen that way otherwise there'd be no way some, no uh, there'd way. be breadcrumbs I, there'd be cyclical breadcrumbs I, yeah. I do think that there were like certain uh, certain like uh, mechanics that we we've lost over time because also some of the structures are so perfectly fit together and there's like perfectly carved wheels and tiny holes within that that like a stonemason could hardly do now given all the tools we have hmm. so uh, there there's more to it than that like yeah there's a weird mechanical thing going on too as far in addition to like the the brain aspect of it and the consciousness and like the connectivity of it I don't know so it's a weird web I'm still trying to figure it out obviously you know? Hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I remember yeah, a, lot of, a lot of our lyrics deal with that as well. 
Yeah, yeah, they do too. Actually, let's talk about the lyrical side of things. So, yeah, it does deal with all of these sorts of things. So, is it yourself? Is it a team effort coming up with the lyrics, or or can you tell me how the lyrics are written? Uh, team effort coming up with the concepts and theories behind them, and then Paul puts it to uh, actual form. Mm-hmm. And he is a he is a very well read, very well spoken individual. So he is the right person for the job. Yeah, yeah. They're they're lyrics. I haven't dived into the lyrical side of things that much, although I can certainly see that there are lyrics available online, which I've read a little bit of. But I, I connect with it obviously on a musical standpoint because music's always spoken to me. Actually, when, when I first heard uh, was watching the video because that video, if I'm not mistaken, that's um, there. There is some lyrics to it, isn't there? But there's just not too much. The inner path song. Uh. No, that's an instrumental. That's there's an instrumental, just one gurgle yeah. at the end, but there's it's fully instrumental. Yeah, I thought you it guys were... It is funny inst- that you say that because it feels like his lyrics about them actually being... Yeah. What's well, saying something? I don't know. You guys have tapped into something very ethereal because your music does talk to people. It's not just a, a straight-up musical interface that you get from you guys. There's some sort... There's, you're definitely imbued with DNA from somewhere else whether you realize it or not, because something happens whenever I listen to your music. I just feel different. It's a feeling thing. It's incredible. You know, it's the same thing as... It is very intense and scary sometimes. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the the guitar gear that you've chosen, because obviously a guitarist, as accomplished as yourself, chooses things with a great intent. Now, I couldn't help but notice that you had an Ironbird. I think it was either for sale or you were giving praise to it uh, on your Facebook Mm -hmm. page. And, of course, Trey from Morbid Angel is very famous for using Ironbirds, but it's not just an Ironbird in your arsenal, I could see clearly. So can you tell me the sort of guitars that help you in your journey here? Yeah, so uh, 80s BC Riches specifically are, uh, I mean, they're just shredder machines. They were built with specifications that work for me perfectly. You know, the necks are not too thick, not too small. They all came with uh, with Kalers or, or uh, licensed Floyd Roses. So you could do all sorts of insane dive bombs and crazy noises on them. Um, generally, I feel, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s guitars are where it's at just because of the scale of things. Hmm. I don't know what happened. I guess, I mean, these companies all got bigger and got bought out by larger conglomerates and the people that didn't know the trade as well would try to recreate what that company had been famous for previously, which BC Rich is still actually trying to do. They're doing a whole, uh, they're revamping their entire line of guitars to try to make them more like the 80s ones but even so they're missing some sort of key element and I'm no luthier but I can tell just by Mm. touching Mm. um yeah I mean I have plenty of other guitars but for the music we create uh 80s BC riches really lend themselves wonderfully to our tone they look great too that's the other thing they they, they visually yeah, element yeah it's it, well, it's important it's an important often important and overlooked side of things and, and there's very few guitarists in metal that look great playing a Strat except for Trevor from Trevor Perez from Obituary of course and I've had a chat to him about his use of Strats it's just what works for him and you can tell it works for him because of how, what the band ends up sounding like but it's a, yeah. it takes ages doesn't it I went through a few bases before I arrived at the music band back in the day and I've never left. But once you find, 
Yeah, it's very it's very consistent. The only problem is it's a it's active like all music men's are. So you can be sometimes like the battery's fine, but the connections get loose in the battery compartment. Mm-hmm. So I've been on mm-hmm. stage a couple of times and pop, off it goes. And you're like, what the hell's wrong? And I've said this many times on the podcast that for the non-musicians out there, I think I've worked out between my bass or guitar and what comes out of the PA, there's something like 35 points of active, 35 active points of failure. So good luck trying to figure out what it is in the moment, as you can, I'm sure you've had plenty go wrong. Yeah. Oh, man. The <laughs> pedals and all the little patch cables and or with pedals that just um, magnifies actually, I, it. Yeah, I I use EMGs in uh, in my in my Iron Birds, and Paul uses the standard uh, super distortions that they came with in the eighties. It just kind of happened to work out that way. Every one that I bought would come with EMGs, so we decided to stick with it just to have some sort of difference in tone. You know, so yes. it's not just two of the same thing. Mm. What are, are you using, Kempers, or what's the effects device you're using? Uh, we both have pedal boards with, you know, it's, it's not really all that crazy. I mean, it's just the right amount of chorus delay and reverb is like 90% of what it is. Paul has a, a flanger that he uses occasionally on a very wide setting. And then I have two delays that I'll activate at the same time sometimes to create this kind of like Pink Floyd ping pong effect. Mm-hmm. Nice. We also uh, we do a, this uh, sort of stereo trick with our cabinets where it's called an X-wing. So if you're looking at the stage, my cab will be on the top right and on the bottom left, and Paul's will be reversed. So regardless of which side of the stage you're standing on, you can hear both guitars, and it really helps with like the stereo functions for all the effects, there you go. especially delay. Yeah. And you're able to do that on two or no drums. Like yeah, I mean, it's just we just we just set up. I mean, that's how we practice. Also, it's just two full stacks, and uh, yeah, the four twelves are X winged, and then bass and drums in the middle. Okay, I get it. So you're getting an equal when you're standing in front of your setup, so to speak. You're getting an equal amount of your other guitar stuff yeah. coming through as well. So you're hearing both equally, mm-hmm. not it's just also, your stuff. Yeah, it's like a self monitoring system as well. So if you're playing a stage that we're like. The sound guy isn't quite getting what's going on or whatever. You still have some sort of a saving grace with this thing because I can hear what Paul's doing and the drums are always insanely loud, so I'm okay there. Yeah, great drummer, by the way. Gosh, I haven't dived into each individual. Isaac is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, incredible. Yeah, very very much. It reminds me a little bit of Richard Christie, actually. You know, the drummer from Sound of Perseverance. Yeah, he'd appreciate that. Yeah. He would very much appreciate that. Yeah, very, again, busy but musical. I just can't stand busy when it doesn't do anything, but when it's busy and musical and it's really adding to the overall experience, then, then I'm all for it. And I've spoken to some of the greatest drummers of all time, like Pete Sandoval and Gene Hoagland, and these are guys that, that do it naturally, and, and Isaac does it really well as well. So metal drummers out there, you've got to listen to Isaac. The other secret ingredient there is that he's also an excellent guitar player. Yeah, I've made this so point so often. Yeah, I've made this point so often. I got to tell you, Morris. I've said great drummers are often great guitarists or, or bassists. They can yeah. play stringed oh, instruments. Oh, what bastard! I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, where does it come from? It's incredible to have all of these skills that some yeah. drummers have got. That's amazing. 
Hmm. I wish I could play the drums as half as good as he can, but I, I don't know. It's just I've tried, and it's just I can't. I can't like uh, have um, like octopus arms and legs. I just don't get it. Well, I think some drummers uh, are born. Uh, it's that simple. I think mm-hmm. um, to to a great extent, you you have a natural talent with an instrument. It's just whether or not you find that instrument and you develop that talent. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the greatest guitarist that ever lived never picked up the guitar. If you if you know what I'm saying, working on that basis. Yeah, I it's, hear you. It's mm-hmm. some some people, and I've seen some people bash away the guitar for years and years, and they sound like as though they're an eight year old that just found it a couple of minutes ago, <laughs> and and. <laughs> it might be overstating the case just a little, but the point remains that if you haven't got the talent for something, it's just if it's a personal pursuit, so be it. But it's probably not something I know for me, for example, I'm a much better bass player than a guitarist. Actually, I'm a mm-hmm. hundred times the bass player than I am the guitarist. It's just, I, I don't know, it's just one of those things. I, I hit the guitar too hard, but when I get onto the bass, I find I can just got the right amount of, out of torque in my fingers, if that makes sense on the hand and I just sit at the right level and I can sort of buzz along doing what it is that I'm doing but when it comes to the guitar I hit the bloody thing way too hard it's just and that's uh, I think you have an incredible talent then because I remember back in middle school you know everyone wanted to play guitar and then like all the kids that like couldn't figure out how to do it would be like well I'll I'll play bass just so I can be in your band you know but Mm. then eventually some people fall into place feeling like no bass is actually a real instrument it's not guitar light and mm. uh, I think I, I to this day you know I'm sure there's plenty of people that don't consider it like a, it's not as in the forefront so not as many people are thinking about it but it's crucial yeah it, it is and look I grew up in an era with guys like Steve DiGiorgio Les Claypool Billy Gould and then I got oh, into the, well then I got into the disco greats like Brothers Johnson Bernard Edwards mm-hmm. uh, Stanley Clark I know he's more of a funk and R&B guy but the point remains when you're listening to those people there to your exact point the bass isn't just a you know downstream from the guitar the, the bass is an extremely powerful important important instrument in its own right and your your bassist does a mighty fine job I've got to say too particularly live with that tarantula technique that Alex Webster thing that he's got going on and um, yeah head banging and stuff and at the same also, time I mean we've all gotten so much better over the years but like sometimes I watch Jeff play and I'm like holy shit that is nice yeah crazy especially with the fretless bass like it's kind of guessing where you're going oh fret, fretless just yeah Fretless is, uh, I know Jack Bruce was uh, basically said, if you're not playing a fretless bass, you're not playing a real bass. But I think (laughs) (laughs) he would say that, the cranky old bastard. But the the point about the fretless bass is, to to your exact point, you are guessing many times, especially when you're going as fast as what you are where you are. But it sounds like as though he's got the intonation thing down pat. Yeah, he's very good at it. And I I mean, those in-between notes, I think, are pretty crucial to our sound as well. Yeah. Uh, Makes it more trippy and psychedelic. The psychedelic aspect, yeah, absolutely. So how do you guys handle touring? Have you been over to Europa and have you done the the solid trek around there that a lot of American and Australian bands do? Oh, what's that? Gone to Europe. I call Europa, 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 sorry. (laughs) Just a a play on words that I've got, yeah. But have you toured Europe? Have you done Um, the heavy touring thing? Oh, yeah. Many, I mean, we've done how many five full european tours at least we were supposed to go back this summer to play to do a second round of some of those open air festivals like party song and brutal assault but uh that is up in the air as of now 
But yeah, I mean, we've pretty much after Star Spawn came out, we toured incessantly for three years, all over the place. We we went we went to Australia in uh, when was it September uh, 2017? We played four shows with that band Arcturus from uh, Norway. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, I remember uh, that. Geez, I must have been tuned in that time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was three years ago, you know, so it was a different time. I mean, we've played all sorts of shows from small to big, and it's, I mean, this new record has really taken it to new, to bigger heights, like you said, and uh, we hope to be able to continue that trajectory. But yeah, I mean, we've been on the road nonstop, and me, Paul, and Jeff also play in another band together called Spectral Voice, and that band also has toured a lot so it's been non-stop to say the least mm. yeah I can imagine yeah so how do you when, when you're touring and I've asked this question a lot of touring artists with the amount that you've done how do you not murder each other is it just a matter of giving each other space and being really familiar uh, with each other's habits so to speak we already spend all of our time together at home in the practice space or going out to eat or whatever. So it's kind of like second nature. I mean, we we know the certain things about one another that'll like push a button or whatnot. And uh, we've definitely honed in on making it a more positive, easygoing experience over the years, you know, not having like a stupid outbreak about, oh, you drank my Coca-Cola or whatever the hell. Mm. Um, or even just like seats in the van or who's driving or whatever. We do a lot of this stuff ourselves. And so it's, uh, we're all equally stressed and tired most of the time. So we've, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of a natural understanding and respect for one another that makes it easy and sustainable. How, how did you go on that Australian tour there? Because I found the dates. I'm just looking at my iPhone here. You played the, the, the Triffid near me in Brisbane. Was that, was it a decent tour, a memorable one? It was amazing, man. That uh, I'd never been to Australia before, and Arcturus is a band we've all loved for a while. So it was, it was a pretty insane opportunity. And uh, yeah, the the whole thing about it, like the the package, just like everything we were offered, we had people help us set up our stuff, which we'd never had before. It was like a really eye-opening experience. And you know, we flew from show to show which we'd never done before because we're usually in a van unless it's like a one-off fly, like a fly-out fest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, we were treated amazing. Uh, the guy who brought us down, Matthew Chalk, works for Southern Extremities Productions. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And I hope to be able to do it again soon once all this comes down. Yeah, I, God, I haven't heard of him, man. I haven't heard of Southern Extremists. There you go. So it's yeah, I've, I've got to I've got to do some research after this conversation. I think because there's um, yeah, it always surprises me, mate. For for a relatively small country, I know we've got a couple of major cities, but there's bugger all in between. Let me assure you, everybody lives in the major cities in Australia because we've got to, because it's just too inhospitable elsewhere. But the amount of you mean. The- there's so many different levels to underground and overground, you know, it, it doesn't, like, you know, back then I'd be like, well, if you're not paying attention, then you're an idiot and have like a chip on my shoulder. But over time I've realized, man, there's so many different avenues of finding out about music and there's so many different promoters. And even like sometimes giant package tours 
people that have been lifelong or fans won't know about just because of the specific promoter that did the show. You know, there's, mm. it's just there's so many variables up in the air that it's a tart, and that's why like, promoting is a whole other game of its own. You know. So yeah, I I fully understand that. Yeah, it's oh look, it's the the amount of uh, I spoke to someone the other night. There was a major tour that that happened over here uh, with Van Halen and Aerosmith, and I think the promoter lost something in the vicinity of fifteen million dollars. I mean that's Jesus well, that's at a scale that I simply can't comprehend. That's a couple of lifetimes of income right there. So yeah. as a business, it's extremely fraught with danger. And Dicey from Soundworks and John down there, uh, who looks after Nuclear Blast in Australia, these guys are seasoned veterans, so they get it. And and mm-hmm. I, I enjoy talking to them. And in, in so far as asking not two different questions that I'm asking you now about what they've done with music and, and the success. But I've always understood that there's a very thin line between going under and profitability. And there's not a lot of warning uh, in uh, oftentimes. And is that how you find things too? Like on the business side of things as a band, it's bloody hard. Being in a band, especially one that's uh, touring and trying. Okay. So, I mean, I guess there's two different ways to see it from my perspective. There's the artistic aspect of it. It's like, I want to create music. I want to be in a band. Whether you go on tour or not doesn't matter. More about releasing records and the output, you know, the appreciation of the output. And then there's a band that wants to do that, but also the live show is a massive aspect of that. Hmm. So obviously finances have to come into play to make it sustainable, especially if you're trying to make a career out of it and not just like touring and then going home and working whatever job that allows you to leave X and L months out of the year, which mm-hmm. sucks. I've had to do that for years. It's annoying. I don't want to do it. So oh, getting everyone on board is very difficult, you know, because so many bands will have a guy that has a kid that can't leave for like two years at a time or a more important job or whatever. We happen to be in a very lucky position where we're all kind of uh, maniacs and are down <laughs> to tour most most out of the year. <laughs> so yeah, finances are extremely fickle. I mean, they used to be way more so than they are now. The thing about touring is that most of the time, if you do it right, you'll break even. It's not all that hard. Like the money you need for gas to get to the next show, you'll likely get at the show before through merch or even any sort of door deal. Like yep. even if you play exclusively like pizza shops and cafes, you know? Yeah. I've seen tours at that level to the one we did with Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel, you know? So the most fickle aspect about it is once you get into a certain echelon. And that's, uh, then the numbers game is like more about merch and your guarantees can grow, but it like it kind of just depends on how your records are doing, which I haven't seen too much of that yet because we're only mm-hmm. on our second full length, you know, and this is the one that we're really going to get a lot of bigger tour offers for, which I'm very excited about. Yep. Um, but yeah, the finances are generally fickle in this whole entertainment industry, whether it be the promoter or the band. And so oftentimes you just like you see the opportunity and you run with it all the way to the end. And uh, I think what most uh, forward-thinking bands or promoters have done is uh, secure themselves a specific niche and place within this world to where they can uh, expect something 
but some level of a, you know, consistency. And so I think that for a band that can happen three or four records, you solidify your existence as this creative force that people will hopefully just like, you're there. You know, you don't have to prove anything to anyone for mm. a certain point. And uh, yeah. with, when, when that happens, your finances are more or less stable based on where they were with the record beforehand. For promoters, I'm not really sure how it works, but this is what I've seen just from how what's happened to us, for example. Mm. But excuse but it is essentially fickle. But you, you have a great product, though. This is the thing. You have a great product. If you know what I'm saying when I, when I mean that, I understand it's music, uh-huh. but I'm yeah. just talking about it from yeah. a business perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You have something that people want, so of course you're going to be dealing with, well, the hope will be that you're dealing with more credible people than a lot of people have to deal with in the underground. We've, we've had, I, I bring this up, I suppose, or I talk about this in a bit more detail because we've had a few tours go under in Australia where um, I think hypocrisy, no, it wasn't hypocrisy, who was it? There was a couple of bands anyway at that level. Once Human, that's right, Once Human with Logan Matter from Machine Head and Lauren Hart, mm-hmm. the Australian vocalist, uh, they tried to tour and it was Bald Face Tag Productions in Australia, I think, where it fell under. And uh, I think sometimes... I don't know anything about the detail except that it did fall and it, it didn't go through. So I'm only hypothesising here, not making any allegations whatsoever. But this is a very fickle business. And if you haven't got, especially when you're first starting out as a promoter, enough money to basically give a guarantee that a band isn't going to be sort of trying to uh, pawn off their guitars to purchase plane trips back to the US or wherever they're from. You've got oh, yeah. to you've got to have a good setup. Yeah, you've got to have a bloody good setup. And look, I've looked into it, but it just seems I've attended some shows here in Australia where I thought they'd be packed out. And there's like twenty of us, thirty of us. I mean, it's got to be especially difficult for you guys. You know, it's definitely a very different environment from what happens in America. A lot of bands will come here and like make their money back on the plane tickets to Europe where it's just like it's half as expensive you know flying mm. to Australia from America is like it's insane mm. so I mean I think that as a promoter in Australia you already have to be starting out with a pretty large uh, uh, large uh, amount of money to be able to... I'd say risk. so. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say you're right. I'd say you'd have to have at least maybe, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, if not $100,000 behind you before you could do it really effectively. Uh, and then, say, take on the losses in, say, the first two or three and put them down to a learning experience. Sorry, that dog next door mm-hmm. always barks as the fella's gone to Darwin and his dog's just there barking its head off all the time and short of yelling <laughs> at it. <laughs> I love dogs. We've got a bull terrier, but it's this little yappy thing. Lovely dog, by the way, but it just doesn't shut up. I love up. bull terriers. Oh, yeah, Bull Terriers are fantastic. so funny. Yeah, yeah. But... I have a Bull Terrier Corgi mix. He's a puppy right now, actually. He's Holy wow. So strange. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard of that before. <laughs> very strange. Strange-looking dog. Very cute, but, like, you know, short and stocky, but with a big head. Is there a photo of him on your Facebook feed? Uh, no, I can send you on the... If you were, I'm curious because my wife, my, my wife's a member of the Queensland Bull Terrier Society, and she she does house inspections because, as you know, bull terriers are originally bred for fighting, so a lot of these idiots buy them for fighting. Now she does the inspections to ensure that they're going to go to a decent home if they're an abandoned dog from a pound or somehow. Somebody contacts the society and says, look, I've got this bull terrier. Can you rehome him? But, you know, you get the usual assortments of dickheads and scumbags that want to 
adopt in inverted commas these dogs that have got a bad reputation but as you and I both know they're, they're big sweethearts these dogs they don't have any fighting bone in yeah. them anymore the temperament's been completely bred out of them so a lot of them end up just being bait for a pig dog you know a, a more violent dog it, it's an unfortunate stigma pit bulls were illegal in the county of Denver for a while Mm. Is that just the sort of people that were owning them? Is that where the stigma comes from, as opposed to the dogs themselves? Because yeah, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the history of why, but if I had to guess, it'd just be from yeah, like attacks at dog parks or like some owners that weren't maybe not stable enough to have a dog that had so much power. Yeah, that's a big issue. We actually got a police dog trainer in, a British guy, in to help us with ours very early on in the piece. We got him in about a couple of weeks after we first got Zanzibar's our dog's name. And when he goes, okay, with a dog like this, yes, you're right to bring me in, but training's only going to start at about six months of age because that's the only time. Up until that point, they're just going to screw around so badly, you're going to have your hands in up full. Mm-hmm. So he didn't, of course, he was virtually untrainable up until that point, but my wife did really well with him, actually. But you had God, you have to have a heavy hand with them, otherwise they run all over you. And and to this day, he's he's getting into old age, so he's ten years of age this year. Um, but he's been a, a wonderful companion to my kids, to us. He's got a good deep bark that scares the daylights out of anybody. We get people crossing the road when we're walking with him to try and get away from us. But he's 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 he's, he's more timid than a than a bloody Labrador. You know, that just looks different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Chug is my dog's name, but he's a—he's uh, just a goofball for now. He's only four months old, but I, he doesn't have much fight in him. He's just like a jolly little lazy guy. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Well, that's killer, yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll make this one my final question for you then. And look, we've talked a lot about your music and a lot of the greats that I think you've you've very you, you richly deserve to join them in those halls, those hallowed halls. But is there any heavy metal around in 2020, relatively new stuff that you'd recommend to people that, that you enjoy listening to? Yeah, actually, there's a band from Australia called Faithless Burial. Nice. That is superb. They've they've got the intensity and like technicality of uh, immolation mixed with just like that perfect era of like uh, like 1993 era suffocation. It's like technical riffs but catchy. The vocals are super guttural but not like not like pig squeal style. Just really brutal. The pig squeal um, thing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that. Pig schools are not my thing. <laughs> no, God, no, they're not my thing either, I can tell you that. Yeah, I've just found them on, on Facebook here on, on my iPhone. Yeah, Faceless Burial, there you go. Mate, it's, there's so many great bands out there. This is the thing about picking up you guys very late in the piece from when you first started. And there's just ba- – I, I sometimes feel like my, my favourite band I've yet to hear. Cause, and and there's this there's this yeah. myth out there that look I love the classic bands that I've mentioned Death Cynic Morbid Angel Atheist Pestilence continue on you know that the obituary Cannibal mm-hmm. Corpse Deicide but if people aren't supporting the new bands what have we got you're just constantly listening to stuff from 1989 to 1995 you yeah. know and there's yeah there's a constant stream of good of good bands you just you just gotta it's hard to find for sure there's so many of them like death metal is exploding again you know and it's, mm, there's it a lot of bands that are kind of just they're fine you know touring so much you see so many metal bands it's like oftentimes I'm just like I can't even listen to this I can't even listen to metal in the van 
90%. I'm with you. But yeah. uh, every once in a while, it's just like, wow, this is a breath of fresh air. It's amazing. And yeah, Faceless Barrel is the one that comes to mind off the top of my head. What do you guys, it's a, it's a good point just to go back onto the touring thing because it's a bit like that for me too. I guess I'm listening to so much metal outside of bands that I really enjoy such as yourself. I've got to say these days I've listened to mainly classical and jazz music and is it similar for you guys on the touring bus or in the van? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last couple of tours we've mostly listened to like 70s kraut rock like Paul Paul Vu and Harmonia, hmm. Noi, a lot of like calming ambient music, a lot of new age music. Uh, and then just revisiting classics that uh, we all listen to in like middle school and high school, like Pink Floyd and King Crimson and stuff like that. Getting re reigniting a love for that stuff after having listened to metal for for like five years straight at least. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot like that. It's certainly like that for me. I just find that I'm listening to so much metal with headphones on and doing reviews and getting ready for interviews because I do. I've mm-hmm. got to say, I've got. I think I'm going to just. I mean, it sort of goes against the point that I just made before, but I think that from now on, I'm basically just going to focus on a lot of bands that have some vibe going on, or musicians or artists, because I've interviewed so many underground That's bands. Awesome. Well, I interviewed so many underground bands, man, where, like, if I started doing this back in, say, late 2016, some of those bands aren't even around sort of like a year or two later. And I spend... Yeah. That's at- the other thing. So much of it is a passing fad. Like, a lot of these bands will start out and they won't go on tour. Like, they'll play a couple of shows and be like, oh, it's not working out. Well, it's like, because you're not doing it. You actually have to go play shows. Like, getting a record is a, it was always a really big deal to me being pressed on vinyl. Nowadays, it seems like you put out a tape in the next two weeks, you have the demo on an LP. Good, good for them, but like, it was yeah. a really big deal to me. Yeah, there's a, there's some insincerity around that too. I think it's I, see with you guys, you guys. I've got a tape player and I love tapes, so I'd love to listen to you guys on on cassette. I haven't even. Have you guys got a cassette version of Hidden History or? Yeah, yeah. It's probably there's, sold out uh, though. I suppose a couple different pressings. There's like a European one and American one. I, I I'm not quite sure. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't really follow. The, the European one was pressed in Germany, I believe, but uh, I don't know. We're constantly repressing stuff, so mm. I wouldn't say it's unattainable. I'll look, at, I'll look out for it. But I guess my point around that is I think there's been some insincerity with bands releasing things to make themselves look deliberately underground when they could just be releasing things on Bandcamp or MP3, and that would probably be enough. And it sort of gives a false impression about what the bands are doing. And I've picked up some tapes that I haven't listened to beyond the first listen. So I don't even do that anymore, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. If I haven't gotten familiar with a band yeah. through the MP3, I won't bother buying. Like the, the last two tapes I bought, to give you an idea, I mean, and I'm still listening to these two, is Mike Browning and Nocturnus AD's Paradox, which I think is a fantastic oh. album. Jesus. Oh, yeah, that record rules. I still have to, I'm yet to, to get all the way through it. I've heard like the first half a couple of times, but I mean, he can do no wrong, that guy. Is so cool and so nice. I've got to say, he's one of my favourite interview subjects. I, I had a chat to him last week, and we spoke for almost three hours, a bit over three hours, <laughs> and, and we're still communicating over Messenger with each other. He's just a bloody good bloke, Mike Browning, and I don't think people yeah. realise out there how important and how integral he is to the evolution of death metal. Yeah, I mean, he was there when it started, early 80s, early Morbid Angel. Like, Trey was upstairs. Trey was obsessed with Nocturnus before Mike Browning was even in the band. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, when we when we toured with Immolation, Alex Books was telling us that uh, 
yeah, way back when, I don't know, like 87 or 88, uh, they were hanging out in some hotel room together after Morbid Angel had come up to play in New York for the first time. And Trey was just listening to this Nocturnus tape over and over again, trying to understand what the guitar was doing. Mike Davis. And so, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly to your point there. I didn't realise that until I spoke to Mike about Mike Browning. That is about it, but and it was it was only and this got I mean I'm discovering new things all the time. It was only when I watched the video to Lake of Fire, or it might have been a rehearsal actually. I found one on YouTube. There's a lot of things out there with Nocturnus rehearsing. Mm, that sounds cool. Yeah, I should yeah. look into it. Yeah, check it out. But I saw the way saw the way Mike Davis was his, his left hand being a right handed guitarist the way he was fingering the notes and the way he's phrasing the chords and, and I was like oh my god I've seen that elsewhere where have I seen that Trey so I, I had no mm-hmm. idea that Trey Massive had been influence. yeah I didn't I mean who would know and of course Mike Davis like the other great guitarist who I wish would bloody do something is Vito Vito Brada from White Line um, they, they just disappear into the ether and you think my god all this great music it could have been made right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of these w- weird tidbits, like these kind of information, it's like a it's like a torch being passed down. You know, like when we toured with Immolation, we heard all sorts of crazy stories from the '80s about them going to Europe to record and just being around all this when it was a new thing. It's a, it's a, yeah, compared to now, very different, very different. Even though there is a new boom for it again, it's like the the camaraderie. I, I don't feel it's like quite there. Mm. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, it's, I exist in a bit of a bubble, you see, because literally nobody around me gets into metal except for me. I just love it. You know, I mean, my, my whole, you wouldn't even know looking at me I'm into metal. It's just, it's just, it, it's not really a, a thing for me from an, an aesthetic point of view. But to your point, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to speak to people. I mean, I'm doing this so often that I feel connected to the artist. There's no doubt about that. But that's, that, yeah, I, I, was hoping that at this point in time there'd be more of a camaraderie or a brotherhood because I've always found with musicians. I mean, and that's not to say every band hates one another. You know, we have a great circle of friends and bands that we've toured with together many times and will continue to do so forever. But just the general like, world scheme of things, it's, there's like so many different subgenres. You want to call it tech or prog or these types of bands. Won't to tour with these types of bands, and also there's all these different types of scenes between overground and underground and promoters, everything we just spoke about, that it's like, it's like, I don't know, it's a whirlwind. Mm. Yeah, I just find like that... The, the, oh, you go, sorry. I think that the the importance of uh, it being a bit more cohesive is the, the healthy competition and inspiring one another. Well, I think the operative word there is healthy, to your point. And what I find, and this is, I don't even play metal, I play covers, so jazz, funk, even this sort of stuff. And I even find in that, in our local scene here in Brisbane, there are people that seem to get off on bringing other bands down. And it's for no reason. There's to no end. It just is an ego play. And it's a, it's, yeah. it's something that... That's a jockish thing. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange, though, and I don't quite get it. I mean, especially from my perspective, I'm in, well into my 40s these days, and I'm just, I just try to help people, honestly. That's all that I try to do is try to... I gave my old PA to the, my daughter's school. I just want people to create great music in the way that suits them and bring that music to people. But other people, I, I realise they're doing things from an ego standpoint, and I, I just think there's some people I've even stopped talking to because of that reason. I just think, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's way too hard, and I feel like as, I was, as soon as I stopped being of use to you as a musician... 
then I'll be thrown mm. under the bus. So I'm going to end this relationship early. You know, and it's I don't I don't think it's just about musicians, yeah, but it just it just feels more prominent in music circles at times. Well, especially in metal, because <laughs> uh, I don't know, it can get pretty broy and like really aggressive. You know. Yeah. Well, mate, as long as you guys are around to keep doing what you're doing, true fans of great heavy metal will have a band to look forward to releasing new music and also to keep on listening to the music that's out there. So, look, Morris, I've got to tell you, I really appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Um, it's been fascinating having this conversation. I really, you can tell I'm a big fan. I'm a, I admire what you guys are doing, so please just keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, this was a great conversation. I appreciate you asking me to do it. Mm. So what I'll do, mate, from here, if you're comfortable with everything, I certainly am. I'll just release it as it is. I get so many people giving me yeah. such great feedback, and they love the to tune into the conversation as the whole, unedited, away yeah. it goes. Yeah. No need. No need to chop it up. Awesome. It makes it all weird and not a. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Either. Yeah, I don't do it. I just put it all out there, and God, you know, I'm you know, I'm far from perfect in terms of my interview technique and my conversational <laughs> technique, but I just try to have a conversation with people, and uh, and and I feel like as though I found an audience. Uh, you know, I've got a built a bit of you know, there's a couple of hundred people all over the world that listen to me, but then of course there's fans of yours that I think are going to get a different perspective on what you're doing, and it'll add just another layer, yeah. another layer for them to get into. I hope someone uh, gets some positive information out of this. And- questions were answered that they were looking for answers for sweet yeah all right well thanks for the conversation mate i'll let you get back to your night and look appreciate everything and and hopefully mate when you tour australia mate we can catch up yeah i'll uh if we get some dates figured out when all this settles down i'll definitely uh stay in touch and let you know yeah that'd be awesome mate yeah awesome mate yeah well thanks very much again really appreciate it man Mm -hmm. take care andrew no it's you too mate thanks so much for listening to that one hope you got something out of it there aren't too many conversations posted with morris on the internets so i hope that one did something for you now if you enjoyed that chat there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com and if you like listening maybe you like reading you're in luck because i've written a book all about the podcast Scars and Guitars Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Hard Rock, Heavy Metal and Beyond. Click on the link in the banner on the website. You'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. Download a sample and if you do complete the purchase because you like what you've read, do hit me up because I want to thank you personally and I've got some more information to share with you about the book in the moment. But before we get to that, I'll bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. Until next time, it's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew Mackay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel and things have just snowballed from there. In all... I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. 
ever. Yeah, wise, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do cold chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he, he was very, you know, very open-minded and, and he was into having his, his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favorite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.